everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today, and with me as usual is my lovely yellow wife. (laughs) My lovely wife and yellow player. There we go, Haley. I don't know who I am or what I am anymore. I am apparently very sleepy all of a sudden. <laughs> like, geez. We did say that you were hungry. You might be experiencing a sugar crash, and so it's a perfect time to have alcohol in your tummy. That's true. Well, before we get to that, welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. This is episode number 145. We are a podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, tabletop games, dice games, things of that sort, and beer. And today, Delta gets to have a beer. Yes. Yeah, so I talked with my doctor person. Uh, last week, which was my three-month check-in with them, basically, uh, we talked about how well the new med's going, things like that, and uh, he asked if I had any other questions, and I said, yes, actually. How bad would it be for me to just have a beer or two with my medicine? Because I have to take my medicine at 6.30 p.m. is the time that works for me, and I was like, I don't want to drink with it because technically alcohol can do very bad things with uh, methylphenidate and different stimulants. And he uh, basically said a drink or two is not going to hurt you. He said, if you were drinking a fifth of vodka with it, then there'd be a problem. But one or two beers, that's not going to cause any issues. I feel like there'd be a problem for multiple reasons if you were pairing it with a fifth of vodka. There would be a problem for multiple reasons. I bet you'd be surprised. So we're back to beers today. Back to brews, baby. What we got there, Delty Poo? So the beer for today, the first beer for today, is from an old favorite of Odell Brewing Co., this is Sippin' Tropical Sour. That smells delicious. It oh, says, my God. Slow down, unwind, no. and come hang out for a while with Sippin' Tropical, a delicately sour ale packed with pineapple, passion fruit, and tangerine, and balanced by a touch of Himalayan pink sea salt. Vacation vibes included in every sip. Odell Brewing Co. is out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And this beer is a 12-fluid-ounce can with 4.5% alcohol by volume. I put my nose in my glass, and I feel like I'm snorting a line of papaya. That is delightful. It's very, very fruity, and it is that tropical fruit, isn't it? Bottoms up, baby. Oh, man, that is a summer beer. Ooh, that's delightful. delightful, delicious, might be nutritious. It's full of fruit, full of vitamin C, I assume, full of magic. I love it. I know it said to slow down, but... I'm going to be drinking this one pretty quickly. It is a very pale yellow in the glass. It's a little bit hazy, and it's still got bubbles coming up from the carbonation. Mm. That is definitely a beer for a hot day. It tastes like one of the very fruity sodas you get from the Asian market. Yes, it does. Uh, What's that? Hawaiian Sun? Is that the company? Hawaiian Sun. It tastes like a carbonated Hawaiian Sun. It really does. It's very sweet, but it's not overly sweet. It actually tastes like you're drinking something that was made with real fruit. Yes, that's very good, but we always like Odell Brewing. I feel like they always knock it out of the park. And, and this one has a sloth on the front. Yeah, the Sippin' Tropical Sour is another another good hit, because they also have their Sippin' Pretty Sour, which is very good. Which we reviewed on episode, like, 44 we looked up earlier? I think so. Literally 100 episodes ago? A long time ago. A long time ago. So, Delty, what have we been up to the last couple of weeks? Um, The last few weeks... That's a good question. <laughs> I've played some more Ghost of Tsushima. Highly recommend on PlayStation. What else have we done? Aside from <laughs> aside from watching Lake and... Let me see. We had Mother's Day. We had Mother's Day. And so for Mother's Day, uh, my sister took my mom and niece up here. And we actually took both of them to go do one of those paint and palettes because we're basic. And then I took them to lunch at the Paseo Arts District. Went to the Picasso Cafe, which is a vegetarian-friendly staple in the metro since, like, the 1980s. I guess my mom had gone there in the 80s. Oh, wow. It's been there forever. But that was delicious. And what did you do, Delty Poo? I picked up a shit ton of Thai Delight and took Thai food out to my mom's house and had lunch with her and my dad and my brother and sister-in-law and their two kids. Uh, And I stayed out there until my brother and sister-in-law left, and then I visited with my parents for a while and finally came home. So that was a a good little weekend of visiting some family. We had a pretty chill week last week. We didn't do too much. Most of our evenings were spent lounging around at the house or picking up or watching The Office for the 47th time. But then this weekend, we took a trip out to Elk City, America to watch Little Lake and play and win her first softball tournament. Yes, watching, what is it, ages five to seven? Oh my God, yes, and they're so adorable. Watching them play softball, some of them you can tell have athletic ability. It's usually a little bit older kids. Uh, But you can tell the ones that are good at athletics and they care. And you can tell the ones who are just there because they're being told to be there. 
Yes. And with these teams, so my little Lakin, even though we were from Elk City, she actually goes to school in Merritt, which Merritt has a graduating class of like 42, maybe on a good year. And so in those small town Oklahoma towns, uh, sports is basically your only out is the only really thing to do. There's not a lot of these schools have band. They don't a lot. Not a lot of them have clubs or whatnot. And so these kids take it really seriously from a young age. And so Del, you had saw that like five-year-old pitcher, right? Yeah, there was this pitcher who was tiny, this little bitty thing. But I told Haley, like she understood the fundamentals of their softball game. If the, you know, they're hitting off of a tee, so it was just tee ball. And every time they hit off the tee, it goes basically straight toward the pitching mound. And every time it was on the ground, she was getting in front of it trying to get her glove down to the ground to get it and like was actually her throws were relatively accurate and for a little probably five-year-old who was tiny she knew what she was doing and actually you could tell like enjoyed it but also cared in a way yeah she really was passionate about it from it like even as a little bitty kid yeah and like Dalton was saying it was super funny you'd see one of the five-year-olds hit the ball and they'd take off running with all their might and basically the seven-year-olds would take three steps and get them out Yeah, the five-year-olds were like a little cartoon where they would hit the ball and take off running, and it's like their feet are moving so fast and kicking up dust, but then the big, like, older kid just kind of lumbers over and tags them with the ball. It's like, you're out, sorry. And they're trying so hard to run so fast, they just can't. Yes, and they were all very good sports, and they all had a great time. Lakin had a great time staying in the outfield, spinning around in circles sometimes. and Flossing. Flossing. Just randomly flossing out in the field to the beat of her own drum, literally, that's in her head. Yep. But overall, it was a really good time. Uh, I did not get much sun. I got maybe about a three-inch burn on my wrist. Uh, Delton stayed out of the sun the entire time, but what happened, Delty? So there's this thing that I'm aware of all the time called reflection burn, and we sat on the bleachers in a certain spot, and the sun was reflecting off of those metal bleachers right to my face, and I said, I'm going to get a burn from this, aren't I? And sure enough, just that evening, I looked like a freaking tomato. So I've been dealing with a sunburn. It's peeling some now, and it doesn't look as red. It's definitely calmed down. But I haven't been burnt, had a sunburn in like years because I avidly avoid it because my skin kind of swells a bit. I generally get pimples. It hurts. And this was maybe 20 minutes. Y'all wonder why we don't want kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> almost to pass down these jeans. Uh-huh. You burn by thinking about the sun. There's a reason when you see me hiking, I've got long sleeves on and I've got a hat and usually a hood up over my neck because I can't handle sunburns. I burn within 15 to 20 minutes and it's bad. The tannest Delton will ever be is his khaki on khaki hiking getup. Absolutely. my my. I'm a tan man doing what a tan man can. So, Yeah, and so... Otherwise, that's about all we've been up to. Hung out with Riley over the weekend after Lake and Softball Tournament. This week's been pretty chill. Again, we've done some cleaning, done some yard work, done some planting. Uh, just really hung out, read books, and tonight is wrestling night. So we are yeah. recording this before we go to Palo Duro this weekend. Yes, we're going to go to Palo Duro Canyon. It's Palo Duro State Park in Texas, just south of Amarillo. We're going to leave Friday, go to my parents, uh, stay the night there, visit with them, wake up, have breakfast leave the dog, and then we're going to make the rest of the trek, which from my parents' house, it's like three and a half hours, I think. So it won't be too terribly bad, but we're going to make the trek out there. Uh, Morgan's going to join us camping, uh, maybe some other people, and we're going to basically be just camping in our tents and then go hiking in the canyon and just trying to enjoy the weather before it gets too hot and have a big, nice camping experience where we get to use our tent we've never got to use, our sleeping mat that I haven't got to use. We both have new sleeping bags. We'll get to like put all that stuff to the test, uh, which will be really nice. We've collected it over the past seven, eight months or more, waited for when there's a really good clearance or a sale or something and been able to snatch it up with gift cards and buy stuff that normally's what was the my sleeping mat was normally two hundred bucks. I think I paid forty. Hell yeah, brother. Thanks to gift cards and sales. So very excited to do that and do some camping. Absolutely. The four of our last five camping trips have been canceled for one reason or another. So speaking into the universe, we will be going to Palo Duro in 48 hours but until then we got to tell you about a game oh here's the door it's straight ahead it's it's a game so the game for today's episode is euphoria and delton cannot find the credits therefore we must only assume it was bestowed upon us by the heavens this game no i can find the credits if i go to board game geek so i think (laughs) i have the first edition from the original 
Uh, the original first edition, I don't think I have the second edition that had some updates. Uh, and there is a third, but I don't think the third is different from the first. But Euphoria is published by Stonemeyer Games, I believe. Yes. Uh, it is designed by Alan Stone and Jamie Stegmeyer, the two owners. And the artwork is by Jackie Davis. Jackie Davis has done several other games. Uh, my favorite artwork of hers is probably Perlock Holmes, the one with the cat. It's She's got really good artwork. Uh, everything else on here, there's no like actual people. It's like uh, uh, companies and stuff. So I think that's really all. I bet she did the graphic design too then is my, uh, my thought there. But yeah, so this is Euphoria, Build a Better Dystopia. Uh, Euphoria is, I don't know if this is the first game published by Stonemaier Games, but it's definitely one of the earliest from 2013. Oh my gosh, it's 10 years old. It's an old game. That's wild. It's an old game. So Euphoria is a game where it's a dystopian world. Let's see, what's the little thing here? The basic theme of Euphoria is you are a low-level manager in a dystopia, and you're trying to use your workers to take over. Workers are dice, and the number on those dice represent their knowledge. Because it's a dystopia, you want your workers to be dumb and happy. And that's basically how the game's going to work, is you're trying to keep your workers dumb and happy uh, while also doing other stuff. So it is a worker placement game where your workers are dice. Those dice's values are going to determine the, basically, intelligence of the dice. If a dice is rolled as a six, that's an intelligent die. If uh, a die is rolled as a two... That's not an intelligent die. And if you, between your, uh, you start with two dice, you can get up to four. Between all those workers, if they're not on the board, when you've rolled them, if all of their values plus a modifier on the board are 16 or higher, then you're going to lose a worker because they basically are too smart for what's happening and run away. But the game is going to be but uh, going back and forth, basically, not even rounds, but it's going to be going back and forth where you are going to place a die and take the action, and then the next player is going to place a die and take the action. On your turn, there are three different things you can do. You can either place an available worker, one of your die, you or you can retrieve any or all of your workers off the board. So this is one of those games where you can place all of your workers, and then you have to retrieve them all if you want to go again. Or you can place part of your workers if you've got all four. Let's say there's you have four and you place three. You could then return three while not playing that one, that fourth one. That's always an option. Uh, you can also just leave some on the board if you want in certain spots. The third action you could do is is a uh, oh, what's the term I'm looking for here? It's a if if you want to do it. Optional. Oh, thank you. God, I am hungry. There is an optional action which is every player has an ethical dilemma and you may reveal that by paying the certain cost and performing your ethical dilemma, choosing one side or the other, which is essentially getting more... Oh, shoot, what are those cards called? I can't think of anything today. I just need to go to sleep <laughs> and stay there for a while. Well, this is probably your first beer in about what? I've had like two drinks. That's not like, doing anything. It's, well, uh, you haven't drank much. It's the recru down. recruits cards. Recruit cards. Uh, so there are recruits in the game, and so your ethical dilemma is going to give you either another recruit or uh, being able to put a star out. Which brings me to how you earn points in this game and finish the game, which is placing your stars. Each player has 10 stars. The game is over whenever one or more players, because it can happen like with me and Haley's game yesterday, it can happen at the same time. But when one player puts out all 10 of their stars, then the game will end. Uh, the way you're going to put those stars out is either by, I guess really it's by completing markets on the board, visiting the territories on the board with the special action to do so, or having recruits of specific factions and that faction either tunnel or, uh, what is this, like a benefit track, allegiance track being progressed far enough. So there's several, several different things in this game. There, The board is essentially four different regions, which represent the different types of people. There's the subterrans. Uh, there's the uh, Icarans, Icarusians, the Icarans, the Icarite, Icarite, Euphorians, Subterrans, Wastelanders, and Icarites. So basically, you've created a, a caste system within your dystopia in order to divide everybody and keep them separated. So that way, you can conquer them. You want to make them dumb, but keep them happy. As they build your city, they get little meaningless points. They are presented with ethical dilemmas such as do you accept your assigned match or find true love, and they are only greatly rewarded if they accept their assigned true match, though there are benefits to finding true love. Yes. 
That's pretty much it. Uh, each of those regions on the board generate different resources. So the subterrans are going to be the ones controlling the water. The Euphorians have the electricity. The Wastelanders have the fruit. And the Icarite have a drug called Bliss, which is a little green cloud, and I love that. It's opium. It basically is opium. Uh, they put it in the water. PCP in the pipes. Uh, so in the game, yeah, you're going to be placing those stars out by building some markets, which can be done by one person or more. Uh, if you participate in building the market, you get to put a star there. If you don't, you don't get to put a star there, and you get a penalty for the rest of the game unless you take the specific special action of that region that will allow you to put a star on that market uh, You know, at a later point after it's built. So there's two markets for each region, except for the Icarites. All their stuff is set the same for the rest of the game. There is an expansion called Ignorance is Bliss, since Bliss is that drug. I thought that was funny. Uh, have not played that expansion. Cannot comment on if it's good, worth it, or not. However, uh, there are different elements to this game, like I said, that kind of twist things around. You have tunnels. So the three different factions that aren't the Icarites, they have a tunnel leading to another faction. And if you take that action a lot, once they get so far down the tunnel, you're able to reveal secret recruits that everybody can have. Uh, the recruits basically give you a special ability and they allow you to have stronger actions throughout the game based on how far on the allegiance track it is. It's basically you have a faction. If that faction's doing really well, as long as you have a recruit that's part of that faction, you're also going to be doing really well. It's pretty much how it goes. But you can go to the tunnels, you can gain resources, you can build those markets, use the actions on the markets, placing stars all around. You're going to do that back and forth until everyone has placed all 10 stars. I find that this in my brain right now is a very weird game to explain because there's so many options, but essentially it's your standard worker placement resource management. You're going to place workers collecting resources. You're managing some, not only those resources, but you're going to manage the intelligence modifier that you have as well as whatever the heart is called, which is your hand limit, morale. You're going to manage morale. You want high morale, but low intelligence. That's going to benefit you the most. You're going to be taking these actions, spending cards, spending resources, gaining resources, moving die around and uh, different dice around until someone gets those 10 stars. The only other little caveat is that action spaces actually have three different types. And I think that this is one of the things that makes the game uh, very fun to me. One of them, as many people as you want, no matter what the die are, they can be in a box. You can put those dice in a box. There could be other people's dice in that box. You can add to those dice. That's fine. There are some that are temporary spaces. You place uh, a die there, and then if you want to go there again, or if somebody else does, they actually will bump your piece away. That piece goes back to you to be rolled, and then they take that action. That's one of my favorite things to do, is if I have three or four actions and one of them is on that, I leave them there if I know I'm going to take it, or if I think you might take it, because you'll just bump my piece back to me. I would never. Which doesn't really benefit me to have you bump, unless either you're penalized and can't bump, or... If I'm penalized and can't bump, or if there's a benefit to if your dice is bumped based on recruits, all that kind of modifications and stuff. Uh, so there's that, those different spaces. One, and the last space is the market ones. You put your uh, die there, you pay the good to help build the market, and then it stays there until you either retrieve it or the market's complete. Then the last thing uh, is if you have doubles or triples, if any of your dice, whenever you roll them, or I guess I should say at the beginning of your turn, if any of your dice match value, then you can actually pl place them in succession, effectively taking an extra turn, which is really handy to have happen. That's pretty much how the game functions. I know that's a lot of craziness all over the place, but I was telling Haley, I would like to play this again with more people, either four or five. I don't know if I'd want to do six. It feels like a lot. But four to five, because something I really, really enjoy is the competitive yet collaborative efforts in this game. Everyone is moving allegiance tracks. They don't know what your secret recruit is. So Haley had Subterran, the blue color, as a recruit. She kept bumping up their thing. And once she bumped it into the, hey, reveal secret recruits. Hey, look, I had a secret Subterran recruit. Now he's active. And I can then, you know, do whatever I need to do to put a star on that card. Uh, I like that the tunnels can are, if I go to a tunnel and gain the resource, do whatever, it moves a little worker. If Haley goes to that same tunnel, it also moves that little worker all the way down to the end until it unlocks a special action if you get down to the very bottom. I like that. I like that multiple people can contribute to making markets. You may not want them to help, but if they do, it will get the market open faster. And so I really enjoy in the game that you're everybody's kind of working together while still competing. 
Uh, one of my other favorite one is the boxes that give you resources. So let's say the box that gives you water. If you have a value one through four die there, you're only going to get a water, one water, and you're going to bump the allegiance track for the subterran faction up by one. But then if I, so let's say I put a die that was a three. Haley could then come down and put a die that's a five. That would be an eight total. That's the middle column. So she's going to get a water and being able to lower intelligence. Somebody else could come in and put a die there to bump it up to nine or higher, and they would be able to get two water, but they raise intelligence. So it's neat that everything kind of works together uh, with your opponents, even though you're separate. And so like Delphi said, this came out in 2013, and I think this was the first worker placement game that I remember playing whenever we got together. Because we, so Delton used to go to a guy named Nathan's house for board game meetups, and there's only like one or two times that he brought me along because I lived in Stillwater, but I think it was my first or second time that I joined, we played Euphoria. And this is literally the first worker placement that I remember playing, and I hated it. You were not a fan of this, and I also remember playing this back in the day and thinking, holy shit, this board, I don't know what's what. It's so busy. It's so chaotic. And now that we've both played it yesterday, it's not that chaotic and difficult to discern, and I still like it. Yeah, so Delton had talked about reviewing you for because we were trying to talk about, okay, what do we want to do on the podcast? You know, we talked about revisiting some old ones, some classics. And then Delton was like, oh, let's do dystopia. Or I'm sorry, euphoria, build a better dystopia. And my initial thought was, ah, shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing it. I remember the, the board being laid out and it was so busy and it was so big and there are so many things to keep track of. And I remember losing miserably and feeling embarrassed and being like 20 years old and be like, I should do, know how to do this better. And this time, whenever he laid it out, uh, I I remembered it, but the board looked a lot smaller. It looked a lot less busy than I remembered. Of course, you know, I have 10 more years of gaming experience after that, but it really is not as intimidating as my memory or the Mensa sticker would say it is. No, it's really not. And like I said, I really enjoyed the play. Like, there's a reason I've kept this around is I had fond memories of liking the game. And now that we played it again, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why that sticks around is it's a solid worker placement with some interesting little mechanics for a game from 2013. You also like to keep it around because you keep winning. That's true. I actually have beat you at this game. I think both times we've played. Yes. Or three, the three times we've played or whatever. And yesterday he won by the third tiebreaker. Yes. So this game, uh, because it is very common for you to have multiple people put down uh, their 10th star in, with one person's action. Then there are tiebreakers, and there are five of them. The first one is the highest morale wins. We were both on the same morale, whatever level that was. Then the next tiebreaker is the lowest knowledge wins. We were both at a one. The third tiebreaker was the most markets with your authority tokens on them, your stars. And I had one more market than Haley did because she didn't help contribute to it because I did it with a double action. I did the double action. And I kept thinking she would go there and like put her uh, star there. But uh, to be fair, we didn't know what these tiebreakers were. We were just going for it. Um, And I tried to keep up with her and make sure. And I'm glad I did, because if I wouldn't have went and put my star on the one you built by yourself, then that would have been another tiebreaker. And it would have went to most territories with at least one of your authority tokens on them. And I think that we were tied for that. We were tied for that, too. We went through all of these. And the last one is die die roll all of your active workers until the tie is broken. Lowest total wins. So then it's literally just a dice rolling competition which is hilarious but yes it went to third tiebreaker and i luckily won and now going back and playing this like delton said it's it's not a it's not a bad game it's it's a really good game especially for a game you know i say that, i feel bad saying that i say especially for a game that came out in 2013 like lots of solid games came out before 2020 like there's a lot of solid classic games and we'll talk a bit more about that later but I am with Delton. I'm surprised at how well this game has held up, not only mechanically, but graphic design wise and theme wise. I really like how well the theme uh, works in with the game. Because, like Delton said, you want morale high so your hand size is higher. You want intelligence low so that way you can actually keep all of your workers. And I feel like it does a really good job of incorporating the theme into the play. And also, like Del said, it's a really pretty game. The, the graphic designer, the artist, did a really great job. And it still looks like a modern game, even though it is a decade, a decade old at this point. Uh, doing a quick search on my phone on BoardGameGeek for games that were released in 2023, sorry, in 2013, to give you an idea of the games that Euphoria was competing with. Uh, the highest ranked game of... Uh, Euphoria should be on here. So, there it is. The highest ranked game on that list for 2013 is Concordia. 
Really? Understandable. The next one is Caverna. Those are both in the top 100. You've got Eldritch Horror, Russian Railroads, Nations, Hanami Koji, Viticulture. So Stonemeyer put two games out in one year, which is crazy to think of. Uh, Lewis and Clark, The Expedition, Bora Bora, Rococo, which I still want to play, Glass Road, Bruges, Battle Lore 2nd Edition that I'm trying to sell, Skull King, Bruxels 1893, and it just goes on. I mean, there's so many games here that I've seen people play or talk, heard about people play, but uh, you can tell that this was toward the beginning of the big renaissance of board games, right? They always said it was like the early 2010s. Absolutely. And it- 2013 was one of those years. Euphoria is still... Uh, currently rated at just, I mean, not, not that these ratings really matter much, but just for the sake of knowing, because it's on this list, 540. Of all time? Yep. Wow. It's 540. Uh, just after it at 541, Sushi Go. Really? 2013. Man, 2013 was a great year for games. Oh, yeah. You had uh, Cuba Libre, which is the, the coin game. You had uh, a Smash Up expansion. You had Bang the Dice game came out. The Duke came out. Uh, Brew Crafters came out. Just all kinds. Rampage that you bought me. This is really random. But speaking of 2013 era, so my assistant that I hired, she's awesome. She is a great assistant. Like she is a hard worker. She grabs things really quickly. She's been extremely helpful. And we were chatting the other day after our meeting. And she says, sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to have been able to be a college student in like 2012, 2013. And I died. Just because that's when we were college students. (laughs) We went to college in 2010. And she was like saying, yeah, it would have been so cool. All the best college movies came out that time. College just seemed so much fun. I think it would have been awesome. Like, girl, I've been reminiscing or like, not reminiscing, I guess I've been... Like, all my life, I've wanted to be a teenager in, like, the 1960s. Oh, that would have been so cool to have been a teenager and been able to take part in protests and, like, go to California. And that's 40 years and that's, before you like, were born. Oh, yeah, that would have been so cool. And this broad is thinking about the 2010s as her year she'd like to go back and be, like, a, a teenager early emerging adult. Yeah. So I just want to throw that out there that I'm officially old because people are uh, romanticizing my youth. You are old. I am old. We'll both be 32 this year. I don't like it. I'll be 32 in less than 30 days. Just kidding. I've, I've considered the 30s my Dale Gribble era. Yeah. Because I'm taking a wilderness training. It's because you're a lunatic. I am also taking a storm chaser training right now. And also I'm looking at getting my forklift certification in September. So to be continued. Well, with all of that, I say let's move to the topic because we still have to wrap this up before wrestling. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. Before the topic, I need another beer, Delty. You need to get that. Uh, yeah. Start I, sipping pretty. I gotta finish mine. Sipping pretty. Sipping pretty. Here, sipping you, pretty. Why don't you tell what this beer is so you can be useful while I finish my beer? I'm useful. So today, for our second beer, De La Episode, we are having Cabin Boys Brewery Trail Magic Hazy IPA. And just a side note, there were a few episodes ago when we reviewed uh, Cabin Boys Brewery's Going Stag, and we said that it was very flat and the can was very soft. We actually felt one of the cans today in the liquor store. It was very hard, so I think we got a bum can last time. So take our last review with a grain of salt. No, I'm reviewing this one. You're not taking this beer. So today, we are going to be talking about Trail Magic Hazy IPA is an Indian Pale Ale. In this 12-fluid-ounce container, there is 7% alcohol by volume. It is a pretty purple can with some pretty purple mountain majesties, and I'm sure a delicious brew inside. Let's go. The amount that you moved this and shook it around in your hand, I'm afraid we're going to have another last week explosion. I hope so. I sure don't. Here we go. Yay! We're safe. I just have it agitated enough for a good flavor. Uh, we'll find out. That's what I do to you. I agitate you just enough to keep you interesting. If anybody knows of a place to hide like a five foot seven, 115 pound sh- rectangular object, <laughs> let me know. Five foot seven? I don't know how tall you are. <laughs> I am not five foot seven. What are you, five six? <laughs> five five? Five eight? Try like five three. <laughs> You're not five three, are I'm, you? I'm five three. Isn't I'm my shrimpy. dad like 5'3"? No, your dad's like 5'5". Five five. I look up to him, just barely. I didn't realize you looked up to him. Not many people do. Hey! Hey! So, this beer, it looks like an IPA. It quacks like an IPA. It smells like an IPA. It must be an IPA. 
Yep, it looks about like you expect. Super hazy, which is what it is. This is a hazy IPA. It has what we call a calf slobber head. That is the best descriptor, because I know exactly... Do you realize the amount of people that just now went, excuse me? <laughs> just look up the picture of a calf, like a baby cow, a calf that's like drinking out a bottle, and they're going to have slobber, and it's just this thick, white, foamy slobber. But with a lot of bubbles. A lot of bubbles. This is calf slobber IPA. Whoa, that is a tongue puncher. Ooh, that's oddly sweet in the aftertaste. It has a sweet aftertaste. It punches the tongue, but it's not with bitter. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how I feel about this. It doesn't really taste like an IPA. Like, it smells like an IPA. It quacks like an IPA. It looks like an IPA, but it doesn't taste like an IPA. It just tastes like a really sweet beer. I don't know what hops they use for this. This is weird. And, of course, there's nothing on the can to actually help me out. Trail, That's wild. It's the Trail Magic Hazy IPA. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty strange. It's not bad. But it's like you put it, you you take a drink, and it immediately your tongue is just assaulted with the. Normally, it would be the bitterness from hops or the citrusiness from you know if there was a lot of citra hop or something, you'd get like that tangerine or whatever. And this one just assaults your tongue, but I can't say why. It tastes like those gummy orange slices you get in the bulk candy section. It's a fake orange but taste. It's really sweet. It's okay. It's a beer. It's not a bad beer. It'll get you drunk. But it's not my... If I'm going to pick a hazy IPA, this probably isn't the one I'll pick. I, of course, would not turn down a free one. You're not crazy about this hazy? I'm not crazy about it. I think it's all right. Um, Cabin Boys, for me, has been uh, kind of... Not necessarily hit or miss, but hit or okay. Bearded Theologian was very good. I like Bearded Theologian a lot from them. Going Stag was a little flat, but I think we need to try that one again because yes. we determined that their cans should be a lot firmer. Yes. And this one's okay. Like I said, I would accept a free one of these. I will drink it. We like a good set of firm cans. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> to move on to the actual topic of this episode, what we wanted to talk about, because I thought it would be kind of fun, was just discussing a little bit of the first games by designers. And so there are a lot of game designers that you would recognize the name of, or you might uh, like their games or things like that. And so the reason why we picked this topic is because this was the very first Stegmeier game that I played, or Stonemeyer game. And Bo both. Both of us, yeah. <laughs> no, Stonemeyer, the designer, and Steg uh, sorry, Stegmeier, the designer, and, and Stonemeyer, the company. Yes, and yeah. Stonemeyer, the company. And so we were thinking, you know, what would be a good topic? And so what we thought we could do is do a little overview of some designers that we know and love and talk about, you know, what was the game that introduced us to their work and got us hooked? Because there are, you know, Plenty of designers who design multiple games, but there's, I feel like, a, a few pillars in our game collection, that is, that we keep coming back to. For example, my favorite, Uwe Rosenberg. Haley is a big... Now, is it Uwe or Uva? That's a great question. I, I like always Uwe. pronounce it Uva because that's, Probably, that's the way you normally do the E, depending on your type of German. Probably is Uva. That's what I always say. Uwe is just what we're used to. But anyway, uh, in terms of Uva Rosenberg, the first thing I was introduced to, which is the first game I introduced Haley to, was definitely... The game most people are introduced to, which is Agricola. Agricola is a classic worker placement, a classic uh, kind of mean worker placement at times. Uh, just a, a very, a very much, uh, a game that is very much a staple in majority of people's collections. Like if they have a board game collection and they like worker placements, Agricola is probably there somewhere. And so whereas Euphoria completely turned me off of worker place placements, Agricola is what completely turned me on to them because after I played Agricola, I was like, oh, I actually love worker placements. And I do. Worker placements are one of my favorite games. I love Uwe Rosenberg because you know, a lot of his games reward efficiency. A lot of his games, you know, use math. And I like to use a little bit of math every once in a while. But I really liked this game and, and I liked it especially because it showed me that I really do like worker placements. And that opened up a whole set of games for me, not only of Uwe Rosenberg style, but also the worker placement. It made me more open to trying other worker placement games because I really liked my experience in Agricola. And also, I was undefeated for years until Mac beat yep. me once. And aside from Mac, I am still undefeated in Agricola. She's good at Agricola, I, don't, I guess, because she, she grew up on a farm. It's fine. Yeah. Or Cat around slobber. one. <laughs> exactly. Well, I wonder what it is about Euphoria and its style of worker placement, or if it was just you were still so new to games. I think I was so new to games, and also it was a lot of pieces on the board at once. I like Agricola yeah. because things open up slowly, and I yes. think that helped a lot, but Euphoria was like, here's everything, and 
10 years on, I still have not touched anything in the sky. I have not touched anything that was the Icarites. I have not even ventured to that side of the board because I'm too focused on down here with the groundlings where I belong. Yep. And that makes sense. But yes, yeah, so where Euphoria was our first uh, Jamie Stegmeier game, Agricola was our first Uva Rosenberg game, hands down. And that, that sparked a big love for Uva for both of us. Yes, we have really loved Patchwork, of course. We love the two-player version of Bonanza. The first time we went to a board game cafe, that's bon- what we played. Bonanza. Bonanza. What else we played, Delta Poo? Well, I was trying to look and see uh, what Uva Rosenberg we actually had in my collection. I was trying to figure out if in the app I could organize it by designer. And I don't think that there's an option for that, sadly. We've played a lot of Uva Rosenberg, even if we don't quite own them yet. Yes, we have. Because, I mean, Patchwork is, like you said, that's a game that we've had for just a long time. That's one I have probably played over a hundred times, just oh, with my sister. Easily for you, yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, yeah, there's a whole bunch. He's, I mean, Bonanza is one that we've got, right? Uh, we have Agricola. We have At the Gates of Loyang. We've got, do to do to do we have the two-player version of Caverna. We have Patchwork. We have A Feast for Odin, which I love. I think that might be it. Oh, I forgot he also did New York Zoo that we like and want. Oh, I love New York Zoo. And then we want to play Atiwa, the new one. And so it was, again, Agricola is what showed me that I really loved worker placement and also opened up the door to all these other Uwe Rosenberg games that I know and love. Exactly. Uh, another designer that is very, very popular, uh, at least I feel like, that I love more than I do most other designers, which is Alexander Pfister. And Alexander Pfister, I was introduced to a game that I still think is an absolutely phenomenal game, and I think it's overlooked a lot, and I think that it deserves more recognition, which is Isle of Sky. And that was one of the first games that we reviewed on the podcast, too. I would say within the first, like, 20 or 30 episodes. I can actually give you an accurate uh, thing for Isle of Sky, because it's going to be somewhere in here. Oh, we haven't. We haven't reviewed it? We've never reviewed Isle of Sky. What's wrong with us? Even we've been overlooking this game, Delton. I, well, it's on my, if you notice, it's yellow. Uh-huh. Yellow you means want I it. want to review it. We have not reviewed Isle of Sky, nor Raiders of the North Sea, nor Feast for Odin, nor Lorenzo Il, Mag- Il Magnifico. Or what Hanami Koji, or Mechs vs. Minions, or Gentis, Arkham Horror LCG, Crusaders, Blackout Hong Kong, Windake, Nyctophobia. Okay, so spoiler alert for future episodes, my friends. Even we have been overlooking Isle of Sky, <laughs> and so this was the first uh, Alexander Fister game that you played. It's the first Alexander Fister game that I played. He is what I consider now my favorite game designer, and I have a goal of owning every game he designs, which I'm not far off once I start looking. I need Sky Mines, which is the new rework of Mombasa. And I need Cloud Age that he's a co-designer on. And I think I might need only one or two other things. I need like the basically Great Western Trail Argentina, which is the new kind of simpler rework of it and stuff like that. But aside from that, I have Oh My Goods, both its expansions. I've got Tybor the Builder, which is a prequel to Oh My Goods. I've got Expedition to Newdale we haven't played. I have Mombasa. I've got Maracaibo. I've got Blackout Hong Kong, Great Western Trail. Uh, Broom Service, Broom Service, the card game. I love Fister's designs. And so what is it about Fister's designs that you love? I don't know. They work for my brain. (laughs) That's part of it is they click for me. Like we sit down and play Maracaibo. I understand it. You play Great Western Trail. I may not be great at it. I understand it. Isle of Sky, I get it. Broom Service is another game I think is very, very overlooked because I love the I choose you follow. Like I pick this action and then you can follow it or you could steal the action. And something about that game is just so much fun for me. Uh, I don't know. I just really like his games. I think that his style of designing works in my brain. He's also another one that really rewards efficiency. Yes, but Especially in a different oh way than Uva. Yes. But yes, definitely Oh My Goods, which I feel like I'm, me and Tyler. Tyler, uh, if you're listening, Tyler, hello. Tyler loves Oh My Goods, and so do I, but like we both were talking about none of our friends love it as much as we do, that it's just such a good game, but it's a weird one to teach. It's kind of a hard one to get used to playing and stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like Great Western Trail, it clicked with me because it was a lot of resource management too. But Oh My Goods does not click with me. Oh My Goods is purely resource management. (laughs) Yes, but for some reason, it just does not click with me. So I'm glad that you like uh, Alexander Fister. And again, he's a a pillar in in our collection. Absolutely. What's another one we got on our little list here? Wolfgang Varsh. So Wolfgang Varsh, uh, Wolfgang Warsh is 
someone who is popping up very much recently, and you will recognize his name as being literally one of the most prolific designers in terms of, not prolific, that might be the wrong term. I would say so. In terms of quality or popularity of designs, it's kind of hard to not have his name up there. And I'm going to tell you why right now. The first ever game that we played by Wolfgang Varsh is going to be The Mind. And we wanted that game so badly that we didn't even wait for the U.S. release. We ordered it from Germany. I have the German version. I made sure to order the German version. But outside of that, outside of the German version of his game, or of, of The Mind, outside of The Mind, he not only designed The Mind, he also designed the hit roll and write turned hit app, Gone Schern Clever. That's pretty clever, or that's so clever. And all the clever games. He also designed the Fuzzies, beloved by Shut Up and Sit Down, designed by, is it through CMKY? Also beloved by my six-year-old niece. Yes, she absolutely loves that game. He also, uh, this is what's crazy, he also designed possibly the most popular push-your-luck game on the market today, The Quacks of Quedlinburg. And one of my absolute favorite games of all time. As well as one of the best party games out there, Wavelength. Yes. His, like, if you look at, his, you know, most designers, you pick up an Uwe Rosenberg list of games, and it's just a shit ton of worker placement with a few sprinkled things in there. You pick up a Wolfgang Warsh thing, and you're like, what the hell? It's all over the place. Every single one is different. I mean, uh -huh. the same person who designed Quacks of Quedlinburg designed the Fuzzies. Yeah. It's amazing. Just the, the repertoire, the ability that he has to create so many different games. And what was the first one we played? Was The Mind, right? The Mind. And, you know, every time I get a new Wolfgang, Wolfgang Varsh game, I don't know what I'm going to be getting into. I don't know what to expect. He doesn't really have a style. Mm -hmm. He just creates good games. Right. If I pick up an Alexander Pfister, I'm expecting more than likely one kind of style. If you pick up a Vital Lacerda game, you're expecting a certain style. A Nuva Rosenberg, a Reiner Knizia. Things like that. Who else do we have on this list? We have Reiner Knizia. Reiner Knizia, which what was the first game we played by him? Lost Cities. That's we right. We played the shit out of that game. Lost Cities is still one of the best two-player only card games, I think. It's very, very, very good. You're basically, you have multiple colors of cards. You have to play them. I can't remember if it's playing the highest value. Like, I honestly do not remember how the game fully plays. But it's a fantastic game. There is an app. Everybody loves the app. Highly recommend that. But Reiner Knizia, has, he's, he did Raw, he did Samurai. I mean, he's done High Society, one of the best, like, just strict betting, or uh, I guess betting, yeah, card games. And his, he's, he was a game designer since 1992, right? He's like been that, designing forever. So basically, like, 31 years, almost as long as we've been alive. He legitimately has, like, over 1,000 games under his belt in terms of design or co-design. Just because he's very prolific at it, he's Dr. Reiner Knizia, he's a mathematician. I believe it's just it's kind of a, a thing with like German designers. Uwe Rosenberg is, has a master's, I think, in combinatorial mathematics. And Dr. Right. Reiner Knizia has a doctorate in mathematics. And I don't know what Fister has, if anything, aside from just a skill for board game design. Absolutely. <laughs> Who else? We got anybody else on that list or is that it? So I think we should stop there because okay. I want to talk a little bit about their similarities. I'm going to add one more name. What's that? Stefan Feld. Okay. Castles Burgundy. Yes. That game cemented me with I will always play something his name is on, even though I've only played like two or three games of his. Uh, Castles of Burgundy will always be on my shelf. That is a very good point and a very good game. Yeah. Now, I wanted to stop about here because I want to talk about what brings all these games together, all these designers together. Now, one, what brings them together is that they are really pillars in the industry. A lot of these yes. folks have been designing games for more than a decade. I mean, Reiner Knizia himself has been designing games and published since the early 90s. They are, you know, folks who have had multiple games, folks who, you know, almost everyone who's been in the industry for a while can recognize their names or point to what games they have designed. But what is another characteristic they all shared out? They're all white men. Oh, white men! And funnily, they're either German or Austrian, aside from Jamie Stegmeier of this list. <laughs> and he has a very German or Austrian last name. Yes. And so we wanted to, so we, we talked about this topic earlier this week. You know, we wanted to talk about, you know, what are some classic designers in the first games that we played with? Oh, this will be a really awesome, nostalgic, little fun episode. And I think that it is. But I feel like the tone of the episode changed a bit whenever I saw Elizabeth Hargrave's tweets this week. 
Absolutely. Elizabeth Hargrave, uh, also known as the fantastic designer of Wingspan, Mariposas, and... Tusi Moosey. Tusi Moosey. I was about to say, what's the button shy game we have that we like? Uh, Tusi Moosey, and I believe she has a couple other things under her belt, but I don't remember them off the top of my head, and I've already Googled a whole bunch this episode. She's got a lot of Wingspansions, too. Wingspan is the big name where you're more than likely going to recognize Elizabeth Hargrave. Yeah, so this week, uh, Elizabeth Hargrave got into a Twitter exchange with a bunch of folks about women's representation in board gaming. And, you know, she has an excellent database, which is a list of all board game designers uh, that are either women or non-binary, so on and so forth. And so her point is, you know, there are women designers, there are female designers out there, but there are a lot of barriers that keep female designers from being either uh, recognized, published, or allowing them to gain notoriety. And also the thing she talks about too is that, you know, there is a systemic issue for it. And now given, I have not read the full thread. It's gone on for a long time. I had bits and pieces of it. It's still kind of going on right now. Like Isa is, is still tweeting about it today. Some fire oh, memes, okay. I may ask. Okay. I may say. So that's still going on. So I'm obviously, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm coming from the male perspective, coming from the white perspective, coming from the, I haven't read fully all of the conversation perspective. Keep that in mind. But there are, from what I understand, systemic issues or systemic things that also create that barrier, some of which is a non-accepting environment or a non-accepting industry. It is getting better, from my understanding, but it's uh, definitely, you know, it's not that there aren't women that want to design board games. It's not like that. It's not, you know, if you polled the entirety of Board Game Geek, I mean, there's a lot of women that go to Board Game Geek, a lot of non-binary folk that go to Board Game Geek. And if you talk to all of them about them that are aspiring designers, it's not like you're going to get zero answers. You're going to get a bunch of people saying, I want to be a designer. So what that means and what that tells me is there's an issue further down that line, that chain, that is causing the block up for them being a published designer. And some of the points made in Elizabeth's thread included, you know, women are more likely to receive harsher criticism, less likely to be taken seriously, um, more likely to have barriers in place that keep their games from even being able to be reviewed by publication companies. But also something that she uh, talked about and linked research to was that women are more likely to take on the domestic duties of the home and the mental load. Yes. And so if it's your job to keep track of the grocery list and all of the planning and what needs to be taken care of tonight with the kids and so on and so forth, you're going to have less of a cognitive load to be able to think about board game design, to be able to think about your ideas. And also, you're not going to have the time. Um, she posted a link that said women took on three times more child care than men during the COVID pandemic. Well, if you're spending all of your time taking care of children, even if they are your own, then you're going to have less time for board games. And the, the thing is, even male parents don't have the same uh, rate of taking care of their kids. Not to say, not to say that men don't take care of kids. That's not the. <laughs> that's not what we're saying. <laughs> have you seen Oklahoma parents? Well, I feel like there's like one parent. It's changing. It's changing. Younger a lot. generation. It's definitely Younger, changing. Our, our generation is definitely changing. Um, but you know the thing is, like, if if women are whether it's due to society, due to expectations from their partner, due to socialization, if they are expected to take on more of the domestic duties of the childcare, of the cleaning, of the planning, of the list making, of the grocery runs, of the what do we have to do next, of packing the car when we have to go to another town, of to making sure that we have everything in the fridge that we need, of of you know, planning what our dinners are for this week, that is less time that you have for for hobbies, for designing, for creativity. And so I think that was a, a major point of hers is that there's so much of this domestic livelihood that's placed on women that that really puts a barrier in itself to that creative outlook of not only board game design, but but other endeavors. And I think that's definitely accurate. And I want to I'm going to make a comparison to another uh, I was going to say another set of statistics. I'm going to make a comparison to a conspiracy theory that me and you both agree with not to discount what you're talking about, but I think it's comparable which is the 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 conspiracy of, uh, and I don't remember what you call it. I'm in my Dale Gribble era, so I'm going to go along with any conspiracy you say. That's fine. It's the one of how the, essentially that the government or the people in charge are keeping us at bay by giving us an overabundance of choice. It's that. If you walk into a grocery store and you say, I'm going to buy a loaf of bread, and you've never bought bread from that grocery store, and they don't carry the brand you normally have, what bread do you grab? It's going to take you 10 minutes because there's, 
this bread and that bread and this brand and this brand and this brand. And is it white? Is it wheat? Is it whole grain? Is it not whole grain? Is it got oats on top? Is it this? Is it artisan? Is it some special cold ferment? Like they, there's so many options. And just to, as a comparison in terms of to try to understand a little bit is if you go down the cereal aisle and you want to pick a brand, a one cereal box, it's going to take you a lifetime because there's a thousand options. So when you're that mentally exhausted, you don't, you get, you know, you don't want to do something else. And that's a very minute, tiny, comparable metaphor to what you're talking about, which is all this mental load gets in the way. Yes, mental load gets in the way. And the research is just now really emerging when it comes to that cognitive load. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it was, it, we're starting to really understand the effect that it takes. Because really, if you look at the brain, you only have so much glucose in your prefrontal cortex. That, mean, that means you only have so much energy and the thinking part of your brain to maintain everything. And so if you are mentally zapped at the end of the day because you're in charge of not only taking care of your own life, maybe the life of your spouse or the life of your children, so on and so forth, and the household duties, then you're not going to have that mental energy to expend at the end of the day to design your cool board game. This is a completely random aside based on the same topic. I would love to see a study and maybe I can talk with the people we know that work with Board Game Geek. I would love to see the statistic of how many minutes were between them checking in a game at the library at BGGCon to checking out their next game. Oh, because that's a good point. It would be hard because there would be very variables. You would you wouldn't know sex or race or gender, you right? Could because- you would. I guess you could, but really they don't keep track of that. Like I want to go from their system, which is just yeah. this is connected to this number. That's it, right? I would love to see the statistics on how long uh, you would basically have to have them pull if somebody checked in a game and they checked out a game like after, and you would have to have them pull a record somehow. But I would love to see the, how long it took people to choose in a library of 5,000 games, how long they stood there debating games. Because I know we've been in there with friends 30 minutes, easy, yeah. trying to figure out what we're taking. And I think that, that you know, that's another example of this overabundance of choice and you're just so bogged down mentally in that. That was where that comes from. That's just a random aside about mental load. I just, you know, because you're trying to choose between so many board games. That's all. But anyway, uh, yes, I think what you're saying is is, uh, is correct and interesting, but also um, to get back on track with my brain because I'm losing my train of thought now. I do think that in the more modern time now, we are starting to see a shift in the industry, which we've talked about. Yes, definitely. In, in a positive way, whether that be uh, uh, gender representation or racial representation, uh, we've seen a lot of progress made. And something that uh, we kind of discussed a little beforehand, like you said, these designers that we talked about, you know, yes, they're all these old white men. Majority of them are all like, you know, of German or Austrian or whatever descent. It's they've been doing it when the board game industry was definitely a boys club, if that makes sense. Yes. And it still, in some ways, is. It's yes. Like you said, it's changing. It's changing, and it did, still is, and it's not that they it's are not, bad people or did it on purpose. No, they're not, like, saying no women or yes. no non-white people. Like like you said, they are just part of that, that old guard, that old boys yes. club. And so it was probably they had fewer barriers to getting their board games published in the early days. Exactly. But yeah, we're seeing a big change though. We're we're starting to see a lot more representation and I feel like I feel like at first the representation change was artists. Because before we started seeing more female designers come out and you know more female run design companies, you were seeing artwork from Jackie Davis, from Beth Sobel. Beth Sobel. You, you were seeing these people come out and have this beautiful artwork and start getting on all these games and participating in all this stuff. And then it slowly started shifting now to where we're seeing people like Elizabeth Hargrave and Lindsay Road and Anna Marie uh, and uh, those different people that are coming out. Yes, exactly. And Molly Johnson, all these people that are designing board games and being part of these industries and part of these companies. And it's fantastic to see some more diversity that try is bringing us closer to a proportional equivalent to society. Uh, because like we talked about, me and you, is one of the other tweets we had was Eric Lang talked about that uh, a little over 10% of the United States are black. And that is not the case for the board game industry at all. Not only players, but uh, even though that has grown a lot significantly, but designers and artists and publishers and everything, that it's still disproportionate. And it's it's all growing. It's all 
getting better, but it's just, it's taking time. But it's just an interesting concept to think about. Yes. And so like Elizabeth Hargrave has said, there are female designers out there. No, there are uh, people of color who are board game designers. So what we need to do is continue to seek out their work too. When we can celebrate Reiner Knizia, we can enjoy playing Uva Rosenberg games. You know, they don't have to leave our shelves. But also, you're missing out on a hell of a lot of games if you're not seeking out those who are made by women or non-white people or anything like that. Well, it's like I've said several, several times, uh, I feel like a lot recently, I have been absolutely loving the designs that uh, former board game tables now all play have brought from Japan. Uh, Whether it be Nine Lives and Ghosts of Christmas from Taiki Shinzawa or if it's the games from Fukutaro, or any of the other designers. I can't think of the... There's multiple designers for their last Kickstarter that had Chomp and Sale and Kotor and whatever the last one was, the Mind Game. Um, All of those were Japanese designs. And there's a lot of board games that come out of Japan from Japanese designers that are just... It's a different take on gaming. It's a different mechanical design of the game or a mechanism, whatever you want to say. And I feel like it's so nice seeing that start to be represented more. You get games like Steam Up and you get games like Jiangxi, the role-playing game that's all about this. It's a hopping demon, I believe is what it is. And it's a Cantonese like mythological thing that Jinwen was telling us about. And she loved every, she's like, this is exactly, this is so good. This is what we learned about growing up because she's from Malaysia. And it's so nice to have that come out and then the Kickstarter just kill it and be supported by the community and everybody. And it's, it's nice to see the changes that are happening in the industry kind of in real time right now. But all those things are worth very much looking into trying out because you wouldn't know that you liked Stefan Feld. If you didn't play castles of Burgundy, you're not going to know that you like these other designers unless you try their games. Absolutely. It's a good point. Delta Pooh. Yeah. I make good points. Let's go to the question so I can make one more. And now join us. For a Malt House Games podcast special, my size question. So, the question of the episode is Who is your favorite female or non binary designer? And again, shout out to Elizabeth Hargrave for having a beautiful database to prove the point that there are female non binary designers out there. They just need to be lifted up. Yeah, she has, uh, has moved her list to a board game geek. Um, oh, shoot, what is it called? It's not a thread, it's like an itemized geek list. A board game geek geek list. Uh, there's one for East, Central, and West U.S. and Canada, and uh, as well as Europe and other countries. So there's a big master list. You can go through that. I highly recommend perusing that. Uh, Haley, you want to go first? You want me? You go first. So my favorite, either female slash non-binary game designer, is going to be Amabel Holland from Hollenspiel. Uh, I've talked about Amabel quite a bit. Um, I enjoy the games that Hollenspiel produces. But I really, uh, just the stuff that she has designed has seemed so interesting. And I've played games they've published from other people more than I've actually played her games. But in the few situations that I've actually played her games, there's just something about the representation of her ideas, of her feelings, of her interactions, of her experiences with the topic that just fascinates me. And I just appreciate, as a publisher even, what she does for the industry. And so that's definitely, I think, my fave. That's a great choice. Yeah. What about yours? My favorite is Jennifer. (laughs) Which game? So I don't know if I can talk about one of her games because I know it's under production. So I'm going to say the game that's under production and Jasper Goes to War. Yes, because Jasper Goes to War, we need to play more. Uh, to to truly get it down and also just see more Jasper face before we get to see him in August. Yay! Our friend Jennifer, she's an amazing person. She's a yes. kind person. She's incredibly intelligent. She kicks ass at her day job. She is a fantastic board game designer. I cannot wait for her game to be published so that everybody can enjoy it as much as we do. But speaking of Jennifer, we should probably do some shout-outs, Delty. Thank you so much to... And I had to weirdly edit this last time because I ended up saying names incorrectly. And I caught it only afterward because I was tired, I think, when we recorded. I don't know. <laughs> Alan, Jennifer, and Cliff. Those are going to be the three here for our patrons. But yes, thank you so much for supporting at a level in which you get shouted out on the podcast. If you want to be like them and our other amazing patrons, you can head to patreon.com slash Games. You can always find us on social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. You can find me 
not personally because I pretty much never use it. So just find me at Malthouse Games. It's always with my, I'm the one who runs it. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-K. She's over here making fun of me, making me laugh because she says that the alcohol is getting to me because I haven't eaten in since like one o'clock. And you haven't drank a full beer in three months. And so I really do think it's getting to you, especially since you're laughing at me looking at you. That's you're true. You're laughing at me looking at you. It's one of those situations where it's just funny, okay? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's pretty, fine. Pretty soon he's going to be taking pictures of a barrel he finds in a bathroom. Next to some bricks at Brick and Barrel. It made perfect sense. Ben will understand. Oh, that was a great time. Uh, you can also send us an email, contact at malthousegames.com. Make sure to send an email to us to let us know of a game you think we should look at, a topic you want us to cover, a question you want us to answer, or a beer that we need to find and drink and review here on the show. Anything else we need to tell everybody before we get out of here so I can go finish up the last episode of Andor before wrestling? Have a hot girl summer. There you go. So thank you so much again for tuning in and listening to the Malthouse Games podcast. By the way, I thought about this before the podcast, before we drank anything, on the couch in the living room. I thought about why we tell, uh, uh, why people say stay tuned, like legitimately keep the radio tuned to this yes. station. I've never really truly thought about it. It's one of those just sayings that you say without thinking. The same thing when you uh, hang up the phone. Don't give me that look. I thought about this out there before anything. Right? It's like hanging up the phone. Yeah. You no longer hang your phone up. I just, I never, you know, stay tuned. It's like, okay, cool. I'll pay attention. I just, it never clicked until yeah. earlier today. You keep your little dial on the FM radio and you go to town. Yep, exactly. But, okay. Anyway, until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. See you folks later. Bye. Bye.